Let's get into the weeds. I'm your host, Brian Brown, Integrated Weed Management Specialist with the New York State IPM program. I'm talking with Thomas Bjorkman, who is a professor in the horticulture section of the School of Integrated Plant Sciences at Cornell University. Welcome, Thomas. Thank you very much. And uh, today we're going to be talking about cover cropping and particularly how cover cropping can affect weeds. Um, but before we really get into that, um, Thomas, maybe you could kind of give a, a brief overview on some of the different goals of cover cropping and some of the common species that are used to achieve these goals. Yeah. Now, the cover cropping is motivated by all kinds of different things by growers. And I've concentrated on vegetable systems where there's uh, a lot of different seasonal opportunities uh, and that uh, weed management is really a very, very important factor for vegetable growers. Uh, despite that, the number one reason people get into cover cropping is for winter soil erosion. That's clearly the entry point, uh, regardless of cropping system. And winter rye is the really easy, flexible uh, cover crop to use in that system. Uh, as people get used to doing that, and they like seeing the green fields and the non-muddy conditions, uh, then they're willing to try other things. Uh, in recent years, uh, soil health has really been getting a lot more attention. Uh, so people are looking at sort of a broader soil health perspective. Uh, so that that is new and people are trying uh, quite a few different things in that one. Um, I think the one that uh, really caught on in the imagination of people is using the tillage radishes for that. Um, they have multiple different effects, but that's been a, an easy entry point for that. Uh, but then, like I said, the Vegetable growers are really interested in weed suppression. Uh, weed management is very costly, very time consuming, particularly in organic systems. You can have hundreds of hours an acre in labor. Uh, so it's reducing that by even a little bit pays off. Uh, so in the vegetable system, the, the best weed suppressor, the easiest one to use, really the entry point there has been buckwheat in the summertime. So there are some others that work for that. In fact, that radish and some of the other brassicas for the fall um, germinating weeds have been uh, really quite effective. Um, so those are the, the ones that I've seen uh, really be the entry points for people for cover cropping for those three goals. Um, of course, a lot, and again, particularly in organic systems, people are interested in maintaining nitrogen in their system. So either nitrogen fixation or nitrogen scavenging because organic nitrogen is very expensive and producing it on site is often very economical and possibly the only way to get enough nitrogen in your system uh, and maintain the uh, organic certification. Uh, so having the, the legumes uh, in that, so the hairy vetch together with the rye in the wintertime, uh, medium red clover is really very common in this area. The seed is, has long been easily available. Um, so that 
that's another um, cover crop use that's kind of distinct from the other ones. So, Thomas, I've I've heard you uh, give presentations before, and you've talked about three keys for cover cropping success. Can you uh, go over yeah. those? Yeah, no, I find they're very easy to remember, so that's helpful. And they focus on things that people already know how to do. So I figured it's, uh, it's easier than memorizing specific steps. So the first one is a fast start. The cover crop has to get off to a faster start than the weeds if it's going to be successful. Uh, so all of the things a grower needs to do to get a fast start. The second one is to have no gaps in the cover crop planting because weeds will fill in any gap. And I think people have a pretty good idea of uh, what kind of ground preparation, planting techniques, that sort of thing, uh, will result in a stand that doesn't have gaps in it. And then the third one is to kill on time. That with every cover crop, you have to know how and when it's going to die. And uh, there's a different optimal time for each cover crop to die before it starts to let weeds grow, uh, before it starts producing seed, uh, before it gets too tough to decompose in time to plant the following crop. So it's very specific, but for each cover crop or grower plants, they should know when to kill it. You know, some of our cover crops overwinter and some don't. So is, is that tricky in, in thinking about how to terminate them and having having a plan for termination. Yeah. yeah, the killing on time. So we have a winter that will reliably kill certain cover crops, and that's great. And so you'll know that they're going to die in the winter. The radish is a good one. In this area, it's usually dead by December. Very reliable kill there. So that's good. Nature takes care of it. You've got it solved. Don't have to do a thing. I love that feature of some cover crops. Other ones are reliably overwintering. The winter rye will overwinter every time. So then you need a plan in the springtime. Um, and that one can actually be difficult because for many crops, you really wanna kill rye just as the stems are starting to elongate. So six, eight inches, somewhere in there. Um, in April, it can be pretty wet. You may not eat able to get into the field at the time they need to be killed to avoid having them uh, suppress the following crop or interfere with planting. And if you're going for the, the boot stage rye, um, that's also a fairly narrow window. Uh, and if the weather doesn't permit the kind of uh, killing technique you're going to use at that stage, um, it can easily get out of hand uh, or start producing seeds. So having a couple of different ways uh, to deal with the, the crop in the springtime is important. Yeah, and you know, speaking of rye and other high biomass crops, do you think it's better to terminate those crops and leave that biomass on the soil surface where it's gonna dry down and uh, hopefully suppress weeds? Or do you get more of that biomass incorporated into the soil where more of the nitrogen is not going to volatilize? Yeah, and that's that's a really good question. It's one of those 
that has a big it depends answer. Part of that is how much tillage is being done in that system. So if it's a low tillage system, then there are enough earthworms and beetles in the ground that if you don't till it and leave the residue on the surface, they will come up and grab the residue and pull it into the soil for you, which is okay. great. Having them do the work instead of doing it with steel, wonderful. And then you're not disrupting their burrows, and so they will continue to work for you. So that's one a low-till situation where you would clearly just leave the uh, residue on the surface and, and let the uh, soil fauna take care of it. In higher tillage system, they, they're not going to be there to do that work. Um, and because tillage is already part of the protocol, then the incorporation uh, makes more sense so that you get the decomposition that you are looking for, uh, especially if getting the, uh, the nitrogen and the carbon in the cover crop incorporated into the soil uh, biological system fairly quickly is important. Um, the mulch question is an interesting one. For a weed suppressive Sudan grass, so Sudan grass is a high biomass crop for the summertime. Um, you can produce seven, eight tons of dry matter uh, with that. And one of the uh, protocols that can work is to have the Sudan grass grow up to about five feet then mow it at about a foot. That mulch that you get from flail mowing, that substantial biomass, works to suppress weed seedlings. And then you have regrowth of the uh, Sudan grass that is very competitive with the weed. So any new weeds would not really stand a chance. Yeah. OK. Um, so so uh, one thing that I know a lot of growers are, are interested in is the potential for allelopathic yeah. effects yeah. In, in that, you know, certain compounds or secondary metabolites or, or phenolics in, yeah. in certain cover crops can be released yeah. into the soil and have negative effects on other, on, uh, on yeah. weeds or other plants. Um, yeah. do, do you have any uh, interesting examples of allelopathy? Yeah, allelopathy was one of those things that really got people excited. Rye was the first one that had the allelopathy really well characterized. Uh, and Sudan grass also had the um, sorgoleonis compound in that one. That's been really well characterized. So allelopathy definitely happens if you add the compound to soil with weed seeds in it, they grow less well. Unfortunately, I haven't seen any situations where I would say the allelopathic part suppressed the weeds enough that it changed any aspect of weed management. That you still had to do all of the things. They, they may have grown a little bit less fast or there may have been half as many, but the, the weed management intervention was still the same. So it, it hasn't had the practical impact um, that we had hoped for, <laughs> and then Lelopathy <laughs> was a, uh, a new idea. Um, and in fact, um, we do see some crop suppression also. Um, so after mm. um, crucifer cover crops, we see cucurbit, squash, cucumbers, that sort of thing, uh, watermelon. Um, they are 
suppressed, their growth is suppressed. So again, it's you know, 20% or something like that. Um, so having 20% less growth in your weeds doesn't result in any change in your weed management. Having 20% less growth in your vegetable crop is expensive. Uh, so that's an area where you do have to be careful about allelopathic effects that are follow-ons uh, from whatever the previous crop was. So you'd maybe wait a couple of weeks to plant in that case? Some of the effects are, are durable. Okay, interesting. Yeah, hey, I know for, for rye, it's the recommendation is to wait a, a couple of weeks before planting yeah. corn. Right. Um, but that larger seeded crops are less affected by the allelopathy in general. Yeah. You know, that the, the larger the seed is, that the less uh, susceptible it is. And I wonder if the same is true for transplanting. Uh, and that's definitely the model. We tested that for, we used um, rye, which is high in the allelopathic compounds, wheat that's low, essentially zero in the allelopathic compounds, and triticale, which is intermediate, and uh, planted uh, small seeded vegetables, large seeded vegetables, and uh, transplanted vegetables. And um, it turns out we had similar growth inhibition. Uh, so we looked at the growth in the first month. It was about the same for the three cover crops, and it was about the same whether it was small seeded, large seeded, or transplanted. And transplanted, oh, wow. and um, so that clearly indicates that it's not the allelopathic compound in rye that's doing this. <laughs> that the, the the basis of that growth inhibition was different, but the, there was a meaningful growth inhibition. Uh, following all of those compared to the bare ground. So there's, there is a little bit of um, growth suppression from the, the winter uh, grains, even though they're doing a lot of long-term valuable things. You would, you would definitely see uh, bigger yield suppression if you allowed the erosion to continue. If you were continually using the same production system, the, the bare ground one would experience much more uh, erosion and that that would depress yields in the long run below the one where it was regularly winter cover crops um, and likewise we kept them all weed free pretty intensively but that's that's one where the regular use of the winter cover crop um, will suppress the uh, the spring weeds so that would have that would have been a difference between the two systems as well. Mm, right. Okay. Um, let's shift a little bit and talk about weed seeds and yeah. um, the, you know, the number of weed seeds and, yeah. and the, the different weed seeds in, in a piece of, uh, of ground yeah. or, or in the soil or collectively called the weed seed bank. Yes. And uh, you know, some growers will really effectively take a piece of land out of production for a summer and you know, uh, till or, 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 um, or prevent weeds from setting seed by um, uh, frequent, either, either frequent tillage or uh, frequent uh, burn down applications. Yeah. And in between those, uh, to kind of make up for all that, they'll they'll plant cover crops, and so they yeah. might have a sequence of of three or four cover crops. 
Uh, and this is really effective at depleting the weed seed yeah. bank so that the next year, the following year, it may be even only 10% of the weeds germinating uh, compared to other fields where they didn't take it out of production. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's kind of one extreme. And then on the other extreme, uh, there are certain growers that aren't land limited that have the ability to um, plant perennial cover crops. Uh, you know, mix of clovers right. and grasses, and and over time, when those perennials establish, they'll outcompete the annuals because they establish earlier, and and they're they're um, you know shading the ground, um, and so the seed bank in those examples is also depleted after two or three years. Both of these examples require a lot of either input in labor and, and materials or, or expense or just, you know, the opportunity cost of not growing on a piece of ground for a long time. Um, whereas, I, you know, I think most growers are, uh, don't have the ability to do that. I'm wondering if, are there quick ways yeah. that you can do this over the winter <laughs> or is it a case where you kind of get what you pay for? And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But the road of unsustainability doesn't get easier with time. Mm. Uh, so sustainable practices uh, do, do make life easier in the long run. Uh, yeah, so first of all, the idea that you can meaningfully reduce the seed bank is having a resurgence. 20 years ago, it seemed like the attitude was there's always going to be a lot of seeds there. There's nothing I can do except deal with them when they germinate. Mm -hmm. And the work that you have done that really demonstrates that in the short term, in a year or two or three years, you can really drive that weed seed bank down. So you get a major change in how your weed management works. That is a great source of hope and a great, direction for tuning the systems to make that happen. So I think that's one of the exciting areas of cover cropping right now is how do we have cover crop systems that really prevent seed rain? Um, perhaps even increase weed seed mortality. Um, you know, if, they, if the cover crop supports the seed eating beetles, for instance, they provide habitat for them or alternate food or something, and then they uh, work on consuming some of the weed seeds. Uh, there's there's really wonderful potential there. Uh, so that uh, intensive uh, summer winter system where you're combining um, a cultivation based or or uh, herbicide or flame or something based technique for killing existing weeds or germinating weed seeds, and then competition from a cover crop killing the cover crop, having another opportunity for weed seed germination and then killing them. It's a very nice technique. And that's one where uh, growers have been using buckwheat for that specifically because it's five weeks from planting to termination. And so you can do a couple of cycles of that and other things during the year. That's only 10 of the 52 weeks. That one I think was first uh, adopted before strawberries just because there's the strawberry beds wear out because the perennial weeds get established and take over. And so reducing those 
as much as possible before planting really extended the life of the strawberry beds and reduced the enormous weed management cost. And that was really plant buckwheats in about mid-June after cultivating, let it grow, mow it, do another cultivation pass, plant another round of buckwheat. So that's the end of July. Then you go into the end of August um, and then you prepare the ground typically some oats or something as a winter cover so that the strawberries can go in for sting in the spring surprisingly effective. The key to making that work, so this is in mid-June. I think every farmer is really busy <laughs> in the middle of June. There's yeah. no time for tinkering, adjusting, thinking. Uh, all of that has to have happened in the winter time. So when that field is ready to go in the cover crop, the seed has to be there. Maybe on the seed bag, it says what the settings are on the planter. You just put it in go and it just happens. It's on the calendar and you just do it. Um, that seems to be the technique. All, all of the thinking is done in advance. All of the shopping, all of the calibrating, all of that's happened. You just do it in the summertime. That's the way that people seem to pull that off successfully. So that, that would be the, it's not a shortcut, but that's the technique for making it possible to do that in the summertime. But boy, once you, if you've gone from a system where you're just constantly battling the weeds and having to cultivate every week or something like that to a system where this weed seed bank is reduced and it's almost unbelievable when you hear growers say, well, you know, weeds used to be a problem, but it's really not one of the things I think about a whole lot during the summer. It's like, <laughs> yeah. can that really be true? Uh, <laughs> but there are growers that pull that off and it really changes their lives. The cost of having worked that out for certain fields, uh, the cost of having the field out of production for a summer or two, um, I think that pays off in quality of life pretty quickly. Uh, Absolutely. Depends, depends yeah. on your approach to farming, but uh, mm -hmm. I, the people who have done it don't seem to regret it at all. Then on the other end, with the uh, taking the field out for uh, perennials and Again, you have to crunch the numbers to see uh, what the opportunity cost is there relative to the alternative. People really get in the mindset that I have to harvest X number of dollars off of every acre every year. Um, and that is not usually the kind of uh, business analysis that's going to uh, lead to good uh, long-term profitability. And so crunching the numbers a little bit differently, looking at the actual opportunity cost of the alternative practices may be helpful, but um, also just may not be something people want to do. You never know. Um, but those, those perennial systems do work very well. And again, you're having time to establish the, the soil fauna, the worms and the beetles primarily, uh, that are helping eliminate uh, weed seeds as well. So uh, many different mechanisms going on at the same time that are helping uh, reduce that weed seed bank. Uh, yeah. And coming out of the perennials, that's another um, situation where buckwheat has proved valuable. So you have a, a large um, biomass that you're 
working in typically in the springtime, it uses up a lot of the available nitrogen. So you have a low nitrogen situation, um, but also any surviving annual weed seeds are gonna take off right away. Planting buckwheat right then is pretty effective because it doesn't require much nitrogen. So it's successful even though the decomposition is immobilizing a lot of the nitrogen and it will suppress that big flush of weeds that you get uh, when taking the perennials uh, out through tillage. Where you have to be careful on that one is that the, the perennial weeds can grow. So the Canada thistle, crackgrass, and bindweed are the three that I've seen most often. Um, yeah, it, it seems like it's, it's a matter of shifting the population away from annual weeds to, right. to perennials when, right. you, when you go into these perennial cover crops or, yeah. or put the ground into hay for a few years. Yeah, um, yeah you, you, you do get a, a, a drop in the weed seed bank, mostly a drop in the, the annuals, yeah. um, but it can allow those perennials to establish. That's where it, it's so valuable to keep a, a close eye on how the perennial cover crop is establishing or the hay crop is establishing and to do the preparation that reduces the competitiveness of those perennial weeds. Right, yeah. So as kind of a, a take home message for folks, do you have any other, any final thoughts? I'd like to reiterate the notion of minimizing the weed seed bank, eliminating weed seed rain at every opportunity. And so if there are spaces where there's the potential for seed rain, plugging in a cover crop there will really make a big difference. It's a highly worthwhile goal. Absolutely. And Thomas, you you created a, uh, a tool to help growers decide which cover That's crop to right. plug in, right? We did indeed. One of the main questions when I got into this is, help me figure out what I want to plant. Because when I look in the cover crop guides, there's a hundred choices and lots of information about each one that doesn't really seem like it's the stuff I want to know. So we created a very simple decision tool specifically for the Northeast and primarily for vegetable growers based on the management goal and when you're uh, intending to plant. Uh, and so that's at covercrop.org. And our idea there was it should take you less than five minutes from arriving at the tool with the notion of what it is you're trying to accomplish until you're calling up the seed dealer, buying some seed very <laughs> fast. That's the idea. And I was sneaky because it really it is asking, what is it you're trying to accomplish first? Where often um, people come into it saying, well, it's July 30th, what should I plant? And there is an answer to that question, but it's really better to say, I'm trying to suppress weeds, I'm trying to improve tilth, and it's July 30th, what should I plant? That's the order to think about it. That will lead to better farm management down the road. That's great. All right. Well, thanks, Thomas. It's been a pleasure uh, chatting with you today and uh, got some great uh, tips for growers about uh, using cover crops. Thanks for uh, being on the show. <laughs> Thank you very much. And thanks to the New York Farm Viability Institute for funding this project. So thanks for listening and we'll see you next time on Into the Weeds.